Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Before we begin, I just wanted to mention, uh, I'm listening to an amazing, uh, inspiring message that was just given this week at the annual MJA Rabbis Conference uh, by Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. Uh, at the final night of the conference, he always gives the, the last message, you know, batting cleanup, uh, and, and, and very, always gives a very prophetic message. I, I missed it because I had, to, I had to come back to work, but I'm, I'm listening to it now in my car. Uh, and he talks about God being on the move uh, in, in Israel and in Jerusalem and throughout the world and, and, and raising up uh, the, the Jewish people again in these last days. And he talks about prophetically the, the whole sweep of history uh, coming full circle back to the land uh, and how at the time of Hanukkah in 1917 uh, is when the Belfort, De- Belfort Declaration was, was, uh, was passed uh, to allow the Jewish people to have Palestine again as their homeland for the land of Israel. Uh, and, and it was done in faith. They, it, Britain didn't even, didn't even control the Holy Land at that time, but it was declared in faith. Uh, and, and then how the British army, the British Empire, defeated the Ottoman Turks, uh, the, the Muslims, and took back the Holy Land. Uh, and then exactly one jubilee later, the second jubilee of 1917 being the first, in 1967, 50 years later, they took back Jerusalem uh, and, and, and took back the, 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 the eternal capital of Israel. Uh, and, then, and then exactly 50 years later, at exactly the same time as, as the Belfort Declaration was declared, in, in December, on the month of Kislev, at Hanukkah, which is the time of rededication uh, of the temple in Jerusalem, at the exact same time, this, uh, on a third jubilee, now in, 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 19, in 2017, in December, uh, President Trump declares Jerusalem <laughs> as the, uh, again, the eternal capital of Israel. And, 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 and vows to move the American embassy there. And, and of course, the nations, like Psalm 2 says, the nations are in an uproar, uh, and they devise a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed, and the nations rage. Uh, uh, but this is all God's doing. Uh, and it's, God has a sense of humor. You know, he says that uh, he'll declare it at the Jubilee. This is the third Jubilee from 1917. And he said the Jubilee, the, the trump will be sounded. And, and the trump sounded. <laughs> And President Trump led the way to, again, um, like recognizing what, what God had always declared, uh, Jerusalem being his capital. So I want to encourage you uh, to uh, get this very inspiring message. You can download it uh, from, from uh, the MGA website, I believe. Uh, and it should be on YouTube as well and probably from Jonathan Kahn's website. Uh, and, and we'll probably have a copy here at the synagogue as well that we'll make available uh, to listen to that, that uh, very prophetic um, end times message uh, for us for today. So, as we begin 2018, the Lord's put on my heart today to speak about the Holy Spirit, the Ruch HaKodesh, moving uh, in our midst to produce revival uh, and, and covenant community. And I'm going to start by, uh, today by reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 4. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. And we'll put that in the overhead as well, please. And then Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, you, all of you here today, that's kind, you also are the living stones being built up into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Messiah. For uh, in the scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion 
a chosen and precious cornerstone. I lay a stone in Zion. I want to trust in him and that stone and the Messiah will never be put to shame. Now, to you, you, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, as the scripture says, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And the stone that causes people to stumble. That's what's happening right now, right? Where all the nations raging against Jerusalem. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were also destined for. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A goikadosh, a holy nation. God's special possession. And I'm segula. Uh, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, once you weren't a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage tells us some important things uh, about uh, the corporate body of Messiah, about what the corporate body of Messiah in general, and then the local Messianic congregation in particular, what it is. Uh, and so it's a great text to set forth our vision for what we're to be this coming year in 2018. And so we're going to put on the overhead here about this, the themes of this passage. It talks about the glory of the local congregation and the gifts in the congregation uh, and the grace of the local Messianic congregation. The glory, the gifts, uh, and God's grace. So first, the glory. Look at First Peter 2, verse 5. And Peter's talking here to the Messianic believers, and he says, You also, like living stones, are all together being built into a spiritual house. Uh, literally being built into a temple. Uh, a house in which the Spirit dwells. Uh, why? Uh, to be uh, a, a melechet kohanim, a, a, a holy priesthood, uh, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through the Yeshua the Messiah. Now in Shemot and Exodus... Uh, when God brings his people out of Egypt by his grace and his power, he brings them to Mount Sinai. Uh, and this is what he says to them at Mount Sinai. Does this sound familiar to you with what we just read in First Peter? Look at Exodus 19, verse 5. Out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Note these descriptors uh, that God used for the children of Israel at Mount Sinai are the same descriptors he uses now for the body of Messiah here in 1 Peter chapter 2. What does this mean? When God brought the children of Israel out by his grace, he said, I don't want to relate to you just as individuals. I want to relate to you as a corporate community. I want you collectively to make a covenant with me, uh, to make vows. I want all of you to covenant together to serve me and to serve each other uh, in a community. And when they did that, God came down. He came down in fire and smoke. Uh, and the mountain, the mountain sign and the mountain trembled uh, under the weight of God's glory. Glory in the scriptures speaks to God's infinite greatness and power and beauty and presence. And when he came down, uh, and Moses saw it, Moses said, let me look at your glory. Let me look right into it. And God said, no, it'll kill you. But my glory will pass by. Now, centuries later, Peter now has the audacity to say, if you 
have been called by God through faith in Yeshua, if you've been saved by grace, and if you're willing to covenant together, be built up together, not just as separate, independent individuals, but as a community, just like the the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai, whereby you serve God and serve each other, then God's glory will come down in your midst. God's glory will come down into the local congregation, into here, us, at EC, and make us into a spiritual house, literally a house in which the Spirit dwells. The same glory that came down on Mount Sinai, the same glory that came down in the tabernacle and in the temple, the same glory that was there in the burning bush, now is available to you and to me, to us, in the local congregation. It's an astounding promise that Peter's making. Uh, uh, and most American believers they, they don't understand this promise, but it's an incredible promise uh, that the body of Messiah in general, and in particular the local congregation, is the dwelling place of the glory of God. God wants to make E.C. a dwelling for his glory. It's a promise, but it's a, it's a corporate promise. And it's a promise that's unimaginably great. First note that, as I said, it's a corporate promise. Peter says, as you're built together, uh, God indwells. As you come together in in covenant community. Very similar to to what God said in Exodus. As you come into the believing community, God indwells you. God lives in the midst of his people. Corporately. And this means that the glory of God is available in the local Messianic congregation in a way that is not otherwise available to you. In the local congregation, the glory of God is available to you in a way that's not available to you in any other place, any other setting. Well, you might say, you know, David, uh, doesn't the Spirit of God live in the heart of every believer? Doesn't he dwell in the heart of every believer? Yes, of course. That's what makes you a believer. Uh, But these texts are saying that the presence of God came down in a special way when the children of Israel made a covenant with the Lord and covenanted together as a community. The presence of God, the glory of God, inhabits his people in a special way, corporately, that's different from how he just relates to us as individuals. So in the local congregation, you have access to God's glory in a way that is not otherwise available to you. For example, do you believe that through the Bible you can learn about God and meet God? Yes. But you first must understand the Bible. Now, now you can read the Bible on your own, and you can understand a lot of it. But if you read it with others, especially with others in the context of the corporate body uh, and the local congregation, which has been the repository of what believers have understood for centuries you're going to be able to understand more uh, and go deeper as iron sharpens iron, and the Bible will go deeper into you in a way that could never happen if you just went off by yourself on your own. In fact, we we have a great example uh, right here with with our our biweekly study of the book of Matthew, you know, where we're all learning together from each other. Uh, You know, I'm learning things from this study, from interacting with all of you that I have never seen or heard before. And so I'm much spiritually richer for having studied the Bible together with you in community. And hopefully the same is true for you as well. 
And the same is true with worship uh, and with prayer. Corporate worship and corporate prayer connects you to God in a way that individual worship and individual prayer does not. Uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was this great preacher in London uh, from the 1940s through the 1960s. And during this time, the technology became available to begin to record his sermons. But for a while, he resisted and would not allow them to be recorded. Why? He said this, and we'll put it on the overhead. He said, it's one thing to listen to a sermon at home. But it's another, um, but it's nothing like the spiritual experience of hearing a sermon in the midst of the people of God, in the physical presence of other people who are worshiping and praying, in the physical presence of the preacher, all gathered together in the presence of God. He says these are two radically different experiences. And it's the communal experience that's going to shape you in a way that the individual experience will not and cannot. Because the sermon is not just a product. It's a participation. Uh, When you're in the presence of others, worshiping and praying together, and in the physical presence of the speaker, it's going to have a greater impact on you. Why? Because the glory of God inhabits his people. God indwells his community in a way that's not available anywhere else. Okay, you say, wait a minute. Uh, I can get the, the, the drashes, the sermons off the off of YouTube, right? Or, or iTunes or the EC website. I can listen to them in, in the privacy of my own car or my home or work. I don't, I don't have to go to shul. And it'll be the same. I'll be just as shaped by them, just as helped by them. And maybe I'll even show up once in a while, once or twice, once a month, or once every other month, and actually hear the message live. But I won't join the shul, uh, and I won't enter into covenant with them. I will not be part of the community in which the people are committed to helping each other learn and grow. I can learn just as much by showing up maybe once a month and listening to the rest of the sermons on YouTube. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. I'll go just as much. I'll be just as shaped by it. You're wrong. Because this is a corporate promise that Messiah makes, that his glory will inhabit the corpus, uh, the corporate body, the community. And the glory of God is available to us corporately in community in a way that he's not available individually. He's available to us in an unimaginably great way. Now, I use this word unimaginably because if the glory of God is in the local congregation, then he'll constantly be breaking through your categories. Constantly breaking through your categories. He'll be constantly doing things in our midst, in and through us corporately, that a merely human institution could never do. So, for example, look at Isaiah's famous encounter with the Lord at the temple in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is commissioned by God. In Isaiah 6, what happens? Isaiah goes to Shul one day, right, as it were. You know, he goes to the temple. Now, he had gone to the temple all his life, many times before. But today is different. He says this, Isaiah 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God came down. God's glory descended. Isaiah has this magnificent vision of God seated on his throne in heaven. 
And then he says this, Isaiah 6, verse 2. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their face, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzavaot, Melokaha Aretz Kavodo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God Almighty, the Lord of the armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is just leveled. He's transformed. He is never the same again. He had this life-changing experience of God's glory. Why? I mean, he went to the temple all the time. It didn't happen before. Because in one sense, the temple was a human institution. Human priests doing animal sacrifices and human rituals. But it wasn't only a human institution. Because God dwelt there. And you never know when God's going to break out. And so one day he goes to the temple and God breaks out. And now Peter is saying this. He's saying that we are that temple. That's what he's saying. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You are the living stones. You're being built together into a spiritual house, into a house of the Spirit, the temple. We think, well, EC, the congregation, the shul, we're just one more human institution. Well, you're only half right. Yes, it's a human institution. Uh, and if you're in any local congregation, including here at EC, uh, you're, you know there are a lot of humans here. <laughs> we have all of our humanness, all of our flaws. So yes, the local congregation is a human institution. But it's not just a human institution. Because it's the only one that Yeshua himself started. Yeshua himself founded and established his corporate body of believers, meeting together, house to house, and in the synagogues. And the local congregation of Yeshua followers is the only human institution inhabited by the Spirit of God and the glory of God. And therefore, you never know what's going to happen. So don't miss Shul. <laughs> you know, Thomas once, once missed Shul. Uh, and look what happened to him. Thomas missed this meeting of the disciples in the upper room, and the risen Messiah shows up. And Thomas missed it. And the moral of the story is, don't miss Shul. <laughs> you never know when Yeshua might show up in a powerful, supernatural, miraculous way. You never know when God might break through, when his train might fill the temple. You never know. Why? Because it isn't just a human institution. You never know. It's not really under our control. Uh, there's no other human institution that's inhabited by the glory of God. Let me give you a few historical examples of this. 1857, uh, in the business district of Lower Manhattan, the heart of New York City, uh, at the old, uh, what was then the old Dutch North Church, uh, a layman named Jeremiah Lanthier felt called to start a noonday prayer meeting for all, uh, from 12 to 1 p.m. for all the businessmen and businesswomen in, in New York City. At the first meeting, nobody showed up for the first half hour. Finally, a few people showed up, but he kept on having it every day from 12 to 1. Two years later, 1859, 60,000 people 
in dozens and dozens of noonday prayer meetings, were praying all over lower Manhattan. And more importantly, people started getting converted uh, and coming to saving faith in Yeshua. Uh, It's estimated that 80,000 people came to the Lord and joined local congregations, when at the time, the entire population of Manhattan was only 800,000. So 10% of Manhattan was converted in this amazing, grassroots, spontaneous revival. Why? The fire spread. God's glory came down. His train filled the temple. And here's another example, same time frame. Uh, this one is 1856. An English woman named uh, Mrs. Um, Colville went to Northern Ireland to minister. She goes house to house in a few towns in Northern Ireland sharing the gospel. She later goes home, back to England, discouraged because she didn't think she had accomplished very much. But there was a young man there named James McQuilkin who came to the Lord through her efforts. He started attending a local Presbyterian church in um, Kells, Northern Ireland. And the pastor suggested that he and a couple of other young men who had also become recent converts, they should start praying together every week and figure out how to reach other young people for the Lord. So these young people met together, started praying, started sharing the gospel together as, as a team. And after a few weeks, another one of their friends came to the Lord uh, and, and uh, became a Yeshua follower. And then slowly, more and more people began coming to the Lord. Uh, and the fire of revival spread. And it spread to another town where the young people wanted to have a, what they called a testimony service uh, at their church. But so many people showed up, so many young people showed up, they couldn't even fit inside the church. So they went outside and started having this outdoor service of testimonies and singing and praying, and it lasted for hours in the midst of the pouring rain. It was raining and raining, but the service went on for hours. And people started coming to the Lord and praying to receive Yeshua. And it spread. And from 1857 to 1860, 100,000 people were saved and became believers. And at that time, in Northern Ireland, there was, the whole population was only 300,000. So one-third of the entire country was saved in that revival. What happened? The train filled the temple. The glory of God fell. God broke out. And these revivals, they're not just confined to, to, to Europe or North America. You know, in 1900, less than 1% of Koreans were believers. Less than 1%. But there was a great revival in the early 1900s in Korea, starting, believe it or not, in Pyongyang. Uh, and the fire spread. And today, over, over, over close to 50% of Korea are Yeshua followers. And a similar movement of the Spirit is happening today in China. And the same thing happened in sub-Saharan Africa. In 1900, less than 5% of Africans were believers. Today, it's close to 55%. Why? Because the body of Messiah is not just a human institution. Let me talk a little bit more about this African experience. It's very exciting. Uh, There's a theologian, uh, Laman Sane, Christian convert from Gambia in Africa, and he's now a professor at Yale Divinity School. And he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in this book, he explains why Africans have turned to Yeshua in such amazing numbers. He says one of the reasons is because Yeshua faith is the most culturally flexible of all the faiths in the world, of all the world religions. 
And it's the least culturally imperialistic of all the world religions. First of all, he says, Yeshua faith is not legalistic or ritualistic. You know, in contrast, he says, rabbinic Judaism and Islam, the rules you have to obey are so detailed and pervasive and governing every minutest aspect of your life that it tends to flatten culture and make everything homogeneous. Diversity really is not allowed. Now, postmodern critics might say, yes, but, but we, you know, secularism, uh, we're different. We secular people, we respect culture. Really? Here's what Laman Sanai says. Here's where he's brilliant. He says, Africans believe the world is filled with spirits. Filled. Good spirits, evil spirits. All Africans believe that. That's what it means to be an African. But the problem is, what do we do about the evil spirits? How do I protect myself? So let's send this African off to Harvard or Yale or some other major American university. What would the university say to him? They say, don't worry, problem solved. There are no evil spirits. You know, no such thing. There are no spirits. There is no supernatural. Everything has a natural cause. But by the way, we still, want, we still love your diversity. We want to encourage it. <laughs> so go ahead and eat your African food uh, and listen to your African music and wear your African dress. We love cultural diversity. But in truth, Laman Sane says, while they claim that they're all for cultural diversity, they're actually gutting the very heart of African culture. But when Africans turn to Yeshua, they're told, yes, there are good spirits and evil spirits. But there is one who has defeated the powers and principalities on the cross. And this is the solution to your problem of how to deal with the evil spirits without denying or mocking or destroying your culture. Indeed, he writes this amazing little line. We'll put it on the overhead, please. He says this, Africans sensed in their hearts that Yeshua did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible Savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the scars skipped and danced in the skies. Yeshua faith helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. So we see how people's desire for, for pluralism and diversity, it's ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. Because our identity is grounded in Yeshua, not in our modern secular cultural values, or in our performance, or in our perceived moral superiority, which actually helps you, leads you to look through your nose down at others and exclude them from your little circle of friends. The gospel says you're saved by grace, which means you're no better than anybody else. But God affirms you in Messiah. And that, that, that is a secure identity that you can never lose because it's a received identity, not an achieved identity. Uh, and these are some of the spiritual dynamics at work today, bringing revival throughout the world. The Spirit of God is on the move. And He wants to invade and transform every culture and flood every area of your life. And the gospel will prevail. And the, Lord is, uh, and the Lord's number one instrument for this is the local congregation, including us here at Eskayim. So my brothers and sisters today, I want to encourage you and exhort you to give up your small ambitions. Lift up your eyes. Pray Isaiah 64.1. Put on the overhead. 
where Isaiah said, phrase, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. The glory of God is in the local congregation. That's point number one. Point two, 1 Peter 2 also says that the gifts of God are in the local congregation. So look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable uh, to God through Yeshua the Messiah. And then in verse 9, he says this, uh, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me tell you how significant this is. Peter doesn't say you have a royal priesthood. He says to all Yeshua followers, you are a royal priesthood. Do you know how radical that is? You know, in ancient times, all cultures understood uh, there were human beings, and then there was God or or the gods. Uh, And they all understood there was this gap between the two that needed to be bridged between the human uh, and the divine. But the only way to bridge this gap was through a spiritual elites. You know, you needed to go to a temple, and there in the temple there'd be priests, and the priests were holy, and they were knowledgeable about things of God, and they would offer up sacrifices and offering on your behalf to the gods. Uh, and so these spiritual elites, they would mediate the relationship between you and God, or between you and the gods. The people themselves could not do this. They weren't knowledgeable enough or, or holy enough. Only the spiritual elites... Only the priests could do this. So even Israel, of course, had had, had prophets and priests and kings, spiritual elites. So now you know how incredibly weird Yeshua followers must have looked to the world. Because Yeshua faith isn't just one more religion. Never has been. When Yeshua faith first burst onto the Roman Empire, onto the scene, the, the Romans couldn't understand them at all. They couldn't figure them out. Even our fellow Jews couldn't understand us, this new Messianic Jewish faith. Because normative Judaism had a temple and priests and sacrifices and offerings, just like everybody else, but not Yeshua followers. So you say to them, well, where's your temple? No, we don't have a temple. Yeshua is our temple. Well, then where are your priests? We don't have priests. Yeshua is our priest. Oh, well, then, then who offers your sacrifices? We don't have any sacrifices. Yeshua is our sacrifice. What do you mean? Uh, No temple, no priests, no sacrifices. What kind of religion is this? It's not a religion. (laughs) Yeshua himself is our temple. First John, I'm sorry, in John 2, 19 to 21, Yeshua says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. And Yeshua told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, we, are no, we no longer worship God in a physical temple confined to just one place. But rather, he says this in John 4, 23, he says, the time is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. When Yeshua died on the cross for your sins and rose again, he became the temple. He bridged the gap between man and God. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, they all said the same thing. Yeshua is our ultimate priest and our ultimate mediator and our ultimate sacrifice. Do you know what that means then? 
On the one hand, Yeshua is the final temple and a final priest and the final sacrifice. But as 1 Peter 2, our text says, it also means that we, as believers, as the body of Messiah, filled with the Holy Spirit, we also are that temple. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, we're the spiritual temple, the temple of the Spirit, you and I. And it says, in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, we're priests. It says we're a royal priesthood. You know, and we're spiritual prophets as well. well prophets? So where do you see that in the text? Look at 1 Peter 2, 9. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, well, who declares? Prophets declare. But now all believers are declaring the praises of God. In that sense, we all become prophets. And so 1 Peter 2 says, all Yeshua followers are prophets. And all Yeshua followers are priests. In fact, he calls us a royal priesthood, meaning we're also kings. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone who has the courage and the wisdom to tell forth the word of God, to tell forth the gospel. Uh, You've got the courage and the knowledge to declare God, declare the good news of Yeshua, to tell it out. Well, what's a priest? A priest is almost the opposite. A priest is someone who has the love and the sympathy and the servant heart to love the gospel in, to love it into people's lives. And what's a king? A king is someone who organizes and oversees everything and figures out how to get it done. And as you know from many scriptures, Ephesians, uh, 1 Corinthians, Romans, the Bible says that when you become a Yeshua follower, every believer is given certain spiritual gifts. Every believer has an anointing for ministry. Some of you have prophetic gifts. Some of you have priestly gifts. Some of you have more kingly type gifts. But the point is, we are all prophets and priests and kings. We are all ministers. There are no more spiritual elites. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Human organizations exist along a spectrum. At one end, you have institutions. At the other end, you have movements. An institution, it's highly structured. A movement is fluid. An institution, it's hard to change. A movement's dynamic. An institution is top-down, and a movement is bottom-up. Institutions are ruled by rules and regulations. A movement is united by a common vision. Today, we don't like institutions. Young people especially don't like them. And, of course, no human organization can exist without some institutional structure. You need job descriptions. You need to know who's doing what. You need to know where the money's coming from and where it's going. Yeah. And even within the body of Messiah, the Bible itself calls for a certain number of institutional structures. We've got to have doctrinal boundaries you know, to proclaim and preserve the core essentials of the faith. Uh, we have vows or commitments we make you know, as a faith community. Uh, for example, we were, required, were commanded to forgive one another, to reconcile with one another. That's a type of structure. The scriptures call, call for elders and shamashim, for deacons, for certain uh, order of our services. So it's not just a chaotic free-for-all. So there's a certain minimum level of required institutional structure. But in light of the glory of God in our midst, in light of, of movements being built up from the bottom up, in light of every believer being given gifts and talents for ministry, the local congregation needs to be mainly not an institution but rather a dynamic movement. If everyone is a minister, if everyone has spiritual gifts, then the body of Messiah isn't ultimately controlled by any human being. 
It's a dynamic movement of God. So some of you are called and gifted to to study biblical languages and and commentaries and scholarship. Some of you have gifts of hospitality and, and mercy and helps. Some of you have mechanical and craftsmen and engineering gifts. Others have gifts in art and music and dance and song and, and working with fabric and design. Yeshua is equipping us with the gifts and the talents we need to be his corporate body that displays his love and grace to the world and his truth. And when we release and encourage and empower people to use and to flourish in their gifts and callings, then we become the community that Yeshua is calling us to be. EC, we are called not to be an institution, but a dynamic movement of God. Institutions are always very turf conscious, uh, have rigid job descriptions. The number one priority is self-preservation. But 1 Peter 2.9 says that our number one priority is to, quote, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light to proclaim his praises. To whom? To the Jewish people? To North Texas? To the ends of the earth? We don't exist just for ourselves. We exist to call Israel and the nations to their Messiah. Therefore, you see, we are called to be a dynamic, spirit-filled movement, an organic, ever-growing, living organism. We're called to be the dwelling of the glory of God. But here's the problem. Most congregations, including our own, don't fully look like that, do we? Now, there's an explosive power the Lord himself has planted within the local congregation. There's something supernatural within, lo- within the local congregation that can break out at any time and transform an entire society. As we just saw in these examples, right, that I mentioned earlier, of uh, these various historic revivals. But why is it that most times, most congregations do not experience this? Why are most churches and most synagogues more like a club? or more like a rigid institution, not a dynamic, spirit-led movement. Why? Because something has to activate what's buried deep within the local congregation. Something has to detonate what's there. We need something to ignite the power that Messiah has placed in our midst. What is it? Point number three. It's to grasp and experience the grace of God in the gospel. Over and over, history shows uh, this explosive potential when an individual or a group gets a hold of of this revelation in a fresh and powerful way. So, for example, regardless of what you may think of them, when when Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Wesley or, or George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, when they got a fresh revelation of the gospel... The gospel of Yeshua and a personal relationship with God, it changed them and it detonated detonated, uh, their spiritual gifts uh, and sparked revivals and reformations and spiritual revolutions and great awakenings. And God used them to transform whole societies and whole nations. And there was a fresh move of the Holy Spirit that just ignited the glory of God within the local congregation. But it's not just famous people, you know, that God works through. I love this one uh, very humble account of someone grasping the grace of God, grasping the gospel, having this personal, existential, 
experience of, the, of grace, which is the detonation that accesses the gifts and the glory of God within us. Now, I love this, this little example of the Lord working even within the humblest of lives. I'm going to show you this to you on the overhead. It's an account written in a diary of a nearly illiterate Connecticut farmer in the 1740s, a guy named Nathan Cole. And in this diary, which is written without any punctuation or capital letters, it's practically illiterate, he writes about his conversion experience upon hearing George Whitfield preached in an open field in Connecticut uh, in the 1740s. And this is what he writes at the very end of his account. He says this, My my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. And And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. He got it. Now Nathan Cole had gone to church all his life. He always considered himself a Christian. But when he grasped the grace of God, what happened? New birth. His life became characterized by what I'm going to call wonder. Wonder. And that's the purpose of the local congregation. 1 Peter 2.9 That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. His light of wonders. Unless the grace of God has struck you in such a way that it fills your life with wonder, uh, the glory and gifts of God, they will not be ignited within you. They won't be activated. Now, how can you fill your life with wonder? Well, this text, we're going to close with this, gives us three examples, three ways of doing it. Three things this text tells us about the grace of God. We'll put it on the overhead. How free it is, how loved you are, and how expensive it was. How free it is, how loved you are, and how expensive it was. Look at first, verse 9, says that we're a chosen people. Do you hear that? That's Chaim, we are a chosen people. Now notice it doesn't say that you're a choice people. You see, if we're a choice people, that would mean God is saying we're better than others. You're better than others, therefore I'm going to work with you in your life. But that's not what it says. The text says you're a chosen people, which means you're not choice. You're just chosen. You're a believer not because you're better than anybody else. Not because there's something good innately within you. But because there's something good in God. And Yeshua has simply come to you by his free, unmerited grace. And he said to you, I want to be your God and your Savior. And I want to open your heart. Josiah Condor, he wrote this in the famous hymn and really encapsulates it. We'll put it on the overhead. He says, It's not that I would choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, had thou not chosen me. My heart knows, my heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. Knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. God's grace is a free gift. Number two, the text says not only how free God's grace is, but also how loved we are. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you're God's special possession. This word actually means a treasured possession. 1 Peter, Peter here is quoting, by the way, from Exodus 19.5. The Hebrew word is segula. I'll put it on the overhead, please. Segula literally means a most beloved treasure. 
a prized possession. So, for example, let's say you're destitute. You're completely broke. And then all of a sudden you inherit a diamond necklace worth $5 million. That would be your most prized possession. Worth far more than all your other assets put together. Do you know what it means for God to say to you, you are my most prized and beloved possession? Think of what he's saying. This is God speaking. He's saying all the galaxies are mine. All the oceans. The forest primeval. The mountains tipped with eternal snow. But they're nothing compared to my love for you. Jonathan Edwards says that until you know that you are that treasured, until you know you are that loved, until you're filled with the knowledge of that, everything you do will basically be for yourself. Everything you do, even the good things you do, you'll be doing it to try to get some security, uh, to feel good about yourself, to convince yourself you're okay, to convince others you're okay. You'll be doing everything to try to fill up that void. But if you're filled with this knowledge of Yeshua's love for you, that you're his treasured, beloved, prized possession, then and only then will you do things not selfishly, but selflessly. You'll finally be doing things for others and not for yourself. Do you know you are that treasured? How can that be? Number one, Yeshua's grace is free. Number two, do you, see, do you see how free it is? Number two, do you see how loved you are? And how is that possible? That's because of point number three, how expensive that grace was. Look at verse 10, 1 Peter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, by the way, is quoting here from Hosea 2.23. And do you know how significant it is for Peter to be quoting from that book? What's the context? It's where God tells Hosea, go and marry this, this adulterous woman, uh, Gomer, who had, uh, had children that weren't his. Well, he even named them this, put in the overhead. The names he gives these children that weren't even his. The first one was Loami, not mine. Literally, not my people. And the second one he named, Lo Rechuma, not loved. Literally, no compassion. He names his kids, not mine and no love. <laughs> not loved. And she was so unfaithful that she finally ran off with some other lover who used her and abused her and then sold her into slavery. And then God now comes to Hosea and says, go and love your wife and buy her out of the slave market and take her back. As so we read this in Hosea 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So I, bought, so I bought her back. Hosea buys her from the slave market. He brings her back home and says, we're going to be together. And the Lord says in the same way, look at Hosea 3, verse 4. He says, my people Israel will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or priesthood. And afterwards they'll return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. The Lord says of Israel, though she was unfaithful and an adulteress towards me, 
Nonetheless, I will show her my mercy and my love and bring her to, to King David, which is the title for the Messiah. And they'll be my people and I'll be their God. God says to Hosea, someday the people I love who've turned away from me, I'm going to buy them back and make them my people. Now for Peter to take that verse uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit and put it here in his texts means that in Yeshua, God has come to earth into the marketplace of this world and though we had betrayed him and spurned him, nonetheless, he, he buys us back. Not with, not with money, but with his blood. In order to make us his own. His beloved, prized possession. And when you see him doing that for you, then you'll know how treasured you are. And then your life will be filled with wonder. And it will activate the glory and the grace of God within you and within the local congregation, within all of us here at Eschayim. And we will become the light to the world that Yeshua is calling us to be. Let this be our vision for 2018. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. I want the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for imparting to us this new vision for 2018, for who you are calling us to be. We pray you'll fill us with your spirit. Fill us to overflowing. Fill this place, Lord, that we may better represent you as your ambassadors. So, Lord, we call you now to rain down upon us. Let your fire fall. The fire of revival, the conviction of the importance of the local congregation for Eschayim to become the type of covenant community that will shine forth your wonder. Your wondrous light. So, Lord, build us up, Yeshua. Build us up into a spiritual house, meaning a house filled with your Holy Spirit, that we will be a city set up on a hill that will attract the not-yet-believers, both Jew and Gentile, attract them to your new life. Raise us up this year, Lord Yeshua, into our kingly and priestly and prophetic ministries, as you've gifted each one of us differently, to work together in unity, to build your kingdom, We thank you today for your grace and your love and your mercy. That though we are undeserving, you have made us into your amsagula, your treasured possession, in whom you delight. Give us a new vision and a new understanding for how you treasure and how you work through the local congregation. So Lord Yeshua, when we gather here together in your name, we invite you to break through. To rend the heavens and come down. In our midst, we pray for revival here in North Texas, uh, among the Jewish community this coming year, Lord. For your glory to come down, for your train to fill the temple, for each of us to find our identity and our contentment in you. So now anoint us, Lord, individually and corporately, with power, with the presence of your spirit, and fill us with a new appreciation for your wonder and your beauty. For you pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.